America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. There's really no soft way to put it. I got blown up. Like <laughs> There was some powder and some cords and it went boomy. Like, you got blown up. Episode 30, Jeffrey's American Story. Welcome, podcast friends, to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Jeffrey K. Vido. Oh, cl- close. <laughs> Jeffrey Cabello, but yeah, you're close. You're, we'll work on that. <laughs> this is going to be a fun episode. I spent a few minutes talking to Jeffrey before I officially started, and he has already had me in tears, but in a good way. This will be a fun episode. Are you ready to begin, Jeffrey? Yes, Tina. Okay, thank you. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Can you tell us a little bit about growing up and up to the point where you joined the military? Yeah, make sure you keep me on track because I just keep talking for days. That's okay, Um, I like that. I was born and raised in a town called Cutler, California, um, in Tulare County, the central California, very, very, very small town, I think. Now it's probably got like about 5,000 people. Parents... Came from Mexico with my sister, I believe, at the, my sister was four. I'm the youngest of three. Uh, they came when my mom was pregnant with my brother. And then uh, they started off as field workers, uh, picking oranges, uh, what have you. Um, it's my dad, uh, Gilberto, my mom, Anna, my sister, Suhey, my brother, Gilbert, and then me, Jeffrey. Yeah, they were field workers picking fruit uh, in Cutler, uh, along with some of my other family members, my uncles and aunts, until uh, one of my uncles, my dad's younger brother, uh, opened his own restaurant from working at, I guess, the first original restaurant called La Esperanza. He branched off and made his own restaurant where my dad followed him and so did my other uncles and aunts and my, you know, my family. We grew up, you know, from, the, I guess, they were field workers, you know, to restaurant workers. And uh, from there, um, the laundromat next door to the restaurant, which was like about 20 miles away in a town called Wheatley, where we eventually moved to, was hiring, the laundromat was hiring next door to the restaurant. So my mom applied there and she got the job. So family was working at the restaurant next door. My mom was working, you know, cleaning and opening and closing the the laundromat next door. And uh, they would do that. For um, for years, it was a family restaurant, so it was a family thing. We all worked there and contributed. We started working at you know very young age, um, helping out and you know being there for my uncle's opening of the business. Uh, I remember my uncle telling us that yeah, I remember when you know all you and your cousins were we'd give you uh, the flyers and you guys would like pass them out. You know when the restaurant was first first opening and that was pretty cool, you know, and at the time, that was the town that my mom was trying to uh, move to, especially because my sister, my sister's about like five, six years older than me, and uh, so my sister was already, you know, in high school, and, you know, about to graduate right there from Morosi High School, and so we already doing classes for the community college there in Reetley. All right, this is an interesting story already. 
Your parents are immigrants. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yes, Tina. This is going to be a recurring problem, isn't it? I know. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to work on it. I'm working on it now. Noted. That is hard work working out in the fields. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right there in the Central Valley, um, I will say this. That is the jobs up there. You're either working in the fields or working in the packing houses picking the fruit, doing everything you can to fruit. So that's the bread and butter over there or agriculture or the dairies. Did they learn to speak English? So at the time they didn't know any English. Uh, my parents uh, didn't know English. Uh, my sister at the time didn't know English. Uh, my brother and I, our first languages were Spanish. Um, we didn't learn English until we started school. So we we're what, what would you call now uh, English second language learners? I guess so. Spanish was our first language and we learned English uh, starting school. You grew up with parents that worked very hard to give you that American dream. My mom up, up until about like two years ago worked three jobs like our whole life. You know, she went from field working to like uh, working at like the McDonald's that opened in, in you know, uh, Rossi to being a janitor at the school that she is now a teacher's assistant for a child daycare. It was always about progressing and making something out of out of nothing. Like all, my whole family, my uncles and some cousins and stuff. Like we we all lived under the same roof too. You know, to that's when everybody first came, and then you know eventually moved out and branched out and made something of themselves. Did they come to America because of the opportunities here? Absolutely. And are are they American citizens now? Yes. They're uh, U.S. citizens, permanent residents. I want to ask you, and since you have a good perspective on this with what's going on on the border, because your family are immigrants, right? how do you feel about everything that's going on down there? Because I can see both sides of it. I feel right. bad for those people trying to get here. And then on the other hand, I see that they also have to obey the law. What are your feelings on that? I would say I'm first generation American, so clearly I I was born here, so I I really can't say on how I came over here at a young age kind of thing. It is crazy because yeah, my family did come here for opportunities, the opportunities that they wouldn't have had in Mexico. You know, starting restaurant businesses, uh, being law enforcement officers. Uh, some of my cousins are social workers, members of the community. You know, running the soccer leagues, the AYSO leagues, military. They some have joined the military. You know, America was, is, was, and it was back then and is still the land of, of opportunity of you choose who you want, how, what you want to be. You know, and my family chose to be the hardworking people that, you know, wouldn't complain about the opportunities they've been given here. And they're still like that to this day. My uncles and my family and my cousins, like, they're all very proud to be Americans. Thank you. When did you join the military? I joined, actually, I joined uh, at 18, yeah, back in 2010. I know it's not, not that long. I'm only 29. You're a babe still. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I joined in 2010, and it was my brother-in-law. I know he, even still to this day, he's like hearing it, but he was the influence on me to uh, join. Not because he was telling me, like, hey, man, join, you know, he, if anything, he was telling, telling me the total opposite, like, don't join. If you do join, like, don't, 
do anything dangerous, you know, because he served back in 0405 in, in Iraq. He, did, he helped uh, First Marines uh, do the first raid of Fallujah as a as an engineer, if, you know, for the army. And uh, you know, he came back different than when he left. You know, he started dating my sister and stuff before he left for basic training. And then, you know, meanwhile, basic training, he would always write to her. And then this duty station that he deployed, my sister would always send care packages. And, you know, so I saw that side of it and, uh, going, you know, like, what's up? Or like, hey, can I write him a letter? Like, hey, like, you know, like, I always thought it was so cool, like, getting him being a soldier, you know? And, and I thought that'd be something that I would want to do. And came back from Iraq, you know, pretty beat, pretty messed up. And, uh, you know, everybody would always categorize him or like make fun, kind of like judge him, you know, on like, oh, it's just a war veteran, you know, crazy, blah, blah, blah. And it was just because it was a misunderstanding too, you know, looking back at it now, that's how my brother-in-law coped. And, you know, he, he would always tell me the truth, you know, like, hey, he told me the good side, the bad sides and the in-between. I was always there with them since I always, always my, my sister's like little magnet thing. I was always with my sister. so. I got to know him pretty well, and uh, I was like, you know what, that'd be pretty cool, you know, to be a soldier. You know, I want to be, a, I want to be a soldier. I want to be something better than you know a restaurant worker. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with restaurant working, but I'm like, I know I didn't want to be a restaurant worker my whole life. Were you and still in high school when you joined? No. Okay. I no. hear that a lot, which I can't believe. No, and, and I didn't do I didn't do the ROTC. Or okay. None of that. In high school either, I thought that was pretty funny, but um, I was just like, no, I'm just going to join the Army, you know, like, so we moved from Cutler to Reedley, where the restaurant and laundromat were, and uh, that's where my brother-in-law lived in Reedley. That's where I met my wife, actually, in Reedley, moving to the high school, and uh, it was cool seeing, you know, at, at the, I guess at the time, as a kid, seeing my, my brother-in-law coming, you know, from, he's an immigrant himself, too, and, you know, his family, you know, for him doing that, and then Growing up in the town that you know we went, I went to high school with, seeing him like leave, join the military, I thought that was pretty prideful. I thought that was pretty like cool, you know. So I wanted to do something as cool as that, and so like yeah, I, that's all I had my mind set on. I didn't think of anything else that I wanted to do than be a soldier. You didn't ever think twice about it. No, so even starting high school, you know, everybody's like, oh, I'm gonna go to college. I'm like, man, I'm just trying to make 2.0s to play, to play soccer, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, work at my uncle's restaurant and join the army, you know, like I literally, you know, in high school, I uh, had this teacher, Miss Lusk. I had her freshman year and then I had her senior year. And, you know, freshman year, she was always like, you know, um, make a poster of uh, your plan on what you want to do, you know, your, uh, I'm like, oh, I run with my dog. I want to join, and then, you know, at the bottom of it, it was always, uh, I want to join the army, and, you know, and that's when I found out, you know, she lost her son in a training accident, and uh, she would tell me a little bit, freshman year, and then senior year, you know, she said, she did the same dial up, you know, like, oh, tell me what you guys want to do after being next year already, tell me what you want to do after high school, and mine was still, like, I want to join the army, you know, like, I literally just, <laughs> I want to join the army, like, I know I'll be good at it, I know, like, you know, physically fit, you know, playing soccer, I would run for fun. Like, I, I know who, who says that back, who runs for fun, but I used to run for fun. And, and I'm like, I know I'd be a good soldier. I know I would. You left how soon after high school to basic training? The, the year after, yeah. The first morning that you woke up in basic training, were you still sure <laughs> of your choice? 
Yeah, yeah, because again, I had my brother-in-law in my corner. You know, he was my whispering shoulder, the angel and devil. Only it was my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law. So I mean, he was, I guess, a little bit of both. You know, like he he told me, you know, don't stand out, good or bad. Take what they tell you. You know, just like bite your tongue and like do as you're told and blah blah blah. And I'm like, all right, so that's literally what I did. First day, start yelling at you, all this other stuff, blah blah. blah. And I'm like, okay, like this this is nothing. Like believe me. <laughs> Like, oh, I've been yelled at? Like, that's nothing. I've been yelled at, too. Like, cool. <laughs> there we go, lighting up. And then, you know, you just do as you're told. And if, if they break you, that's how they would try to mess with you. So I was just, you know, standing straight. Like, all right, no, no, they couldn't mess with me. And then they would try to mess with somebody else. And I'm like, no, nah, this, this is still what I want to do. Like, I, I had no regrets. I, If anything, I was just like, you know, getting... And in that car ride to MEPS and all that, and I was just like, here, here we are, like here I am, like doing it. Who was it that told you not to get a dangerous job? My brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, uh, like I said, I, I would talk to him all the time, and you know, I actually wanted to like join MP just in case if I ever got out, I would be able to transfer because he was always talking about like transferring. If you when you get out, you know, transfer uh, your job in the army to the civilian side, blah blah. And I'm like, well. We'll see. And uh, he always told me, like, go supply, man. Everybody likes supply, you know, because they always hook you up. Go a different route. Don't go combat, especially because him seeing combat, he, he didn't want that for me. And, uh, you know, and then I went to MEP. What is MEPS? Uh, that, I forgot what it's called now, man. Shit, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's okay. Uh, but it's the first stop before you're about to leave. Okay. Or when you do your testing and stuff, that's where they take you to select your job. And then you go to that same place again before you're about to do basic training. That's where you do your, that's where you do your swear in and all that. And So do they give the you a couple of options? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't score the highest and I'm not being smart and stuff, but I, you know, I, I, I still had a, a job selection and could have chosen supply, but I'm like, you know, when the, the term Calvary Scout came up or the MOS the Calvary Scout came up I'm like you know what that sounds pretty cool you know like radios uh machinery uh, the vehicles I'm like yeah I'm like I, I could do that that's cool my brother-in-law Rigo had a buddy named Santos I think you know that he was a Calvary Scout at the time so I'm like you know what that's yeah that's what I want to do right there and then you know when I got back to my brother-in-law he's like come on man <laughs> he really couldn't tell me anything because I guess it reminded him of him, you know, like, because he was just like, all right, dude, you know, like, I'm here for you. If you have any questions, I'll be here for you. And I'm like, okay. Was Afghanistan your first and only deployment then? Is this the Army experience stuff? Yes. So from MEPS, I went to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky for basic training. That's where all the cavalry scouts uh, would do their training at the time. So I went there in October of 2010. OSET, so it's one station unit training. So we just, you know how some people like do this and then go to Georgia or go somewhere else to, to do their job? Well, we stayed there the whole time. We graduated mid-February and about like two weeks before you leave, they, you know, they tell you like, oh, where are you going to go? You know, here are your papers. And I'm like, Fort Drum, New York, where's that? You know, and then that's when you, you know, the drill sergeants are going down the list. I'm like, this is where this is, this is where this is. So it, it came to me and I'm like, Where's Fort Drum, New York? You're like, dude, you're basically in Canada. You're like about 15, 20 miles from Canada. And I'm like, damn. Like, <laughs> like dang, it's going to be cold. And they're like, bring, bring your sweaters, all they said. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, 
I mean, and in New York, I mean, in Kentucky, it was pretty cold there. You know, we were there through the winter. So I'm like, is it colder than here? Like, oh, probably. And when we go, it's me and like about six, seven buddies, I get uh, around there um, from basic training. I go to Fort Drum and um, they're like, oh, you guys are third brigade when they pick a sub. And we're like, yeah. And they're like, well, you guys are about to deploy here pretty soon. And, you know, we all looked at each other and we're just like, Half of us were like, all right, like, let's get it over with. And the other half was like, oh, dang, what are we going to do? I'm like, well, <laughs> well, you got no other choice. Like, this is what you signed up for. Let's get it over with. That's what the mentality was to a lot of us. And we got there, and I, they gave me my room. And I remember I didn't even unpack a lot of my stuff from basic training because I'm like, why am I going to unpack a bunch of stuff or buy a bunch of stuff? We're just going to leave in a month. As soon as we got there, we signed in. They're like, you're gonna, you guys are going to leave in a month. So literally a month and a half later, we deployed. When you land in Afghanistan, is it, it's a different world there, right? When I first landed there, I was like, kind of looks like this desert part of Arizona, like literally dried and all that. And then we land on this big base called CAF, a Kandahar airfield. And, and then uh, that's where, you know, us being grunts, especially uh, at Fort Drum, we were mixed between scouts and infantrymen. So that's always the beef, you know, because infantry is like infantry. Then you have us, clearly great looking dudes, cavalry <laughs> scout. Um, so they're like, oh, scouts this, infantry this. And I'm like, dude, we're literally doing the same job. Like, calm down. Like, let's, let's, let's tone it down a bit. So when we get there, you know, you see a big, a big base. So you see the TGI Fridays, you see the coffee, you see this. And I'm like, man, maybe we should have chosen a different job because, geez, these dudes, these things are getting coffee and then going to TGI Fridays. Uh, so that was our first impression of that. And then they finally send us, you know, to our remote uh, location. Uh, and then I'm like, all right, this, this, is, this is literally what I was thinking, you know, replaced um, 101st Airborne there in, in uh, Afghanistan, uh, cops out where we, or that was our first place where we stopped. Were you nervous at all there or scared? At first, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to lie. You know, everybody first, when they're first experiencing things, like you're just like, dang, you know, because as soon as you get there, you know, they'll tell you like the death, the deaths that have happened, you know, the injuries that have happened, IEDs, you know, Taliban. You know, so clearly it's, it's not rainbows and butterflies right there. It's just like, no, this is, the, this is real. And give you a PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of memes. Everybody makes fun of it now, you know, death by PowerPoint, but that's literally what the military was. But to me, at least, I was just like, okay, like, at least I'm getting the brief synopsis of everything. You know, it's right there in front of me. There's the numbers. Okay, how many people have died? How many people how people were injured? Like, this is what we're going to be doing. Like, okay, that's, that's all I really got from all that PowerPoint. And then that's where they uh, walk you through. Like, they had a little setup outside on, like, oh, how to find an IED. How to identify an IED, and uh, that's what we, you know, we we did, and finally went to uh, that's that place, uh, Cop Stout, where we were replacing them. So they were, I think they were set to leave in the next like two weeks. So they were like taking us on missions at first, showing us the runaround, showing us the ins, the outs, the whatever, and that's where they asked, like, all right, who's gonna be here, like showing us like how many they lost and how many they got injured. They're like, all right, who's going to be the mine detector or who's going to be the valin operator? That's what the machine was called, uh, meaning point man. Who's going to be the point man, you know, stepping first? We were, light, we were a light infantry unit, so we were just, we were always walking. 
that's where I'm like, I raise up my hand. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'll do it. Like, I, I don't know if I can do it, but I'll do it. Like, I, I know, I know I'd be good at it. So yeah. what were you thinking volunteering to do that? I guess I just knew because it was also that awkward moment where everybody looks at each other like, I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. You know, like when, when you're about to cut the pizza, you know, like you don't want to be the first one, but so I'm like, nah, you know, I'll, I'll be the first one. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And then, you know, one of my other buddies said like, oh, I'll do, I'll be the other one since uh, we were in first platoon. So we had four different sections. We had, or we had two different sections out from Bravo section, but we had four different lines, I guess. So like alpha section had first and second and then Bravo had first and second. Well, right there, it sounds like you took that advice about not taking a dangerous job and just that went out the window, right? Oh, yeah. Believe me. I, I was just like, all right, here, here we go. You know, and I remember calling home and stuff like my mom's, my mom, my parents, like didn't know, like they didn't know up until I got blown up and injured, like what I did. I always told them, oh, we're talking to older people, like the war is gone. We're just cleaning up. Uh, I'm like, oh, mom, I'm actually cutting some trees, you know. Um, it's funny because so my buddies, I had a machete in my pack bag uh, when we were packing up. And they're like, why are you bringing a machete? I'm like, believe me, we're going to need a machete. We're going to need a machete. Like, clearly. And they're like, all right, yeah, whatever. You know, you're just being, you know, the Mexican with the machete, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, why? why? Machete. So we literally get there. And, and the first area we were at, it was nothing but brush, trees, bushes. So, you know, you're over there trying to crack them with your hands and all that. I'm over there cutting them, you know, like, and yeah, I'm like, see, I'm like, it's not so crazy after all having a machete there. So when I would tell my mom, cause there was this tree growing in front of the, one of the guard towers. I'm like, oh yeah, mom, I'm cutting trees. Of course they would ask like, oh guys, you guys got to cut down the tree. That way, you know, it doesn't get in the way of our line of sight kind of thing. So when I tell my mom, I'm like, oh yeah, mom, like, you know, I'm cutting trees down, like picking up, doing this and, she would tell, like, my sister and my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law was like, he ain't cutting trees. Like, <laughs> But you were telling her that so she wouldn't worry. Well, technically, I wasn't lying, if you want to be honest. I was, I was cutting trees. You just weren't giving her the whole story. I just wasn't saying the whole story. I'm like, we're, st we're going to a village. We're talking to people. We come back. How were the people there? Did they appreciate you being there? They did, and they didn't. The, at least the first area that we were there. Like, you can tell, like, you know that warm feeling when you're welcome when you're not like kids they would always you know where's the candy you know where's the gatorade where's the, you know, the shiny quarters you know like i remember giving this kid uh two quarters for like two slingshots because they always make slingshots so i'm like hey give you two, two quarters for two He's like all right sounds like a great deal there were some that were very appreciative of us being there and then there were some you know that was just like well what are you doing here and yeah you know we're in their home we're stepping right there down their their neighborhood did you have any close calls before the day of your traumatic injuries? Uh, yeah, actually, well, so being point man, you know, we would find things, you know, we, so we'd find caches, grenades, bullets, guns, anything that could be used against us in short. And so I would find the bombs from the AC-130s, the 125 rounds, uh, cluster bombs, pineapple grenades. I would find all that and I remember I have this one funny story with my uh, platoon sergeant. I was like, oh, picked up a big old chunk of metal and I started hitting it with my knife. I'm like, oh, what is it? Trying to clear it off, trying to identify what it was. And he's like, what is it? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, it's just a big old chunk of metal. And he's like, here, throw it to me. And he was like about a good 10, 15 feet away. And I throw it. 
And he, he catches it and he puts it down and he's like, do you know what that is? And I'm like, no, it's a custer bomb. You just threw me a custer bomb. Like an old school, like World War II era type of custer bomb. That one just never went off. And I'm like, well, I didn't know. I'm like, I was just following orders. You know, you told me to throw it to you, so I did. We were fighting them, you know, all the time and, and the bullets and stuff were, yeah, it was just really about, you know, finding the Easter eggs, finding where they were at and who was better at it. They were better at hiding it or we were better at finding it. Once you find them then, does somebody detonate them or how does that work? When we would find them, we would call EOD. Uh, we couldn't have C4 and stuff like that, so we had to call EOD and then uh, they would come out, you know, and then we would blow it in place. If it wasn't too bad, if it was if it was too bad or whatever they deemed was bad, um, they would take it back or like if it was safe to transport or, or if not, they would just blow it in place being like that, but they would mainly blow it in place. Did you have a lot of snipers out there that were shooting at you? No, not in that first area, no. So we were there, you know, just fighting things. And then, um, you know, we were there for a year. Like I like to tell the Marines and the Navy, I'm like, oh, we we're, we're in the Army. I'm like, we do real deployments. You know, it was it was 12-year-long deployments. Yeah, my niece's husband is in the Air Force, and he does six-month deployments. So we obviously got to tease each other. It's supposed to be there a year. So in order for that, the Army would send you home for 15 days on R&R, you know, for recovery. And everybody wanted to go home right away. And I'm like, man, just put me, you know, somewhere in the middle to lay. That way, when I come back, I'm like, all right, at least we have a couple months left. So I went on R&R, came back to Afghanistan. They're like, hey, your troop is in this other place, this other place called Jalor. And I'm like, that's weird. And I go, well, they're moving to another place. They're just waiting for you and the other two guys so they can go. So we go. I get there, and my buddies are like, dude, we're really going to get in it now. We're going to die. Uh, we're going to be the first U.S. troops there. You know, they're already planning IEDs. Because, you know, like when higher-ups come, they come in their black cops. They come, they settle down, and then, you know, they're, they're just looking at potential areas and then they leave and then so right away clearly they see uh, an American presence so there was intel that they were planning IEDs and stuff as soon as they left so my buddies were like oh we're gonna die we're gonna do this we're gonna die the kind of soldier that I was I'm like well has it happened yet like is it gonna happen like I don't know dude like but who do you think's gonna get blown up first me or you like I'm the one finding these things what are the, I'm the one looking for these things I'm the one in front of you don't worry I'm like you trust me all right yeah I trust you all right cool did it make you nervous at all it did, but it was, again, a desensitizing thing. It was like, all right, like, you got to separate what you're doing because if you get too emotionally attached to when you're finding bombs and guns and bullets and grenades, like, you're just going to let that take over instead of your instinct. You're like, all right, you've already found things this far already. You've already found IEDs, bullets, grenades, and like, okay, like, let's just keep that same momentum going and, and keep following what you've been doing, you take your time. Like in Afghanistan, all you have is time. You literally have nothing else but time. So like, what's the hurry? I would always take my time, regardless of how it took, our leaders, my LT, my buddies, my uh, uh, the regular Joes, you know, the, the E4s and below, you know, everybody was like, all right, yeah, yeah take your time. Because clearly that's, that's your lives that you're gambling with. Believe me, I took my time. Like, I knew that if something were to happen to somebody behind me, it'd be because of me. So I took it very serious. I had joked around and all that in between, played pranks with my, with my boys and my buddies and uh, when I wasn't there. But when it came down to the mission, I was serious. Can you take us to the day that your traumatic injuries happened? And again, share only what you feel comfortable with. 
there's believe me i'm an open book like yeah i know i know everybody says that but like I, you know what again you all amaze me so much because i say this with every single one of you jeffrey and every single one of you says i don't care i'll tell you everything oh yeah well because again it it's the truth again there's no soft way to put it there's really really no way yeah like i said like it Oh yeah, there, there we go. And anyway, okay, boom. Like no, it literally, they, it blew, it, it blew you up. Like, I always am fascinated by how much detail I'm given of that day. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so you had been in Afghanistan for how long? And then you went home for 15 days. How long had you been there? So from April to like end of September. Then we came back in October. So when I, at the time that I went, so if you want to count the time that I got there and the time that I got blown up, it was almost eight months. You got back and I think you just had a birthday, right? So November, we were out there in that new area pulling security for a cop, a base to be built from scratch, you know, literally from start to finish. The day we got there, um, engineers were getting blown up, their huskies were getting blown up because they were using the mechanized stuff and it was bad and this is where it's like all right this is where it's at you know this is this is happening fast forward to november 11th of 2011 uh, that was our first uh, casualty that we lost actually second platoon lost uh, his name was uh, theodore rushing and uh, we lost him we lost him on veterans day of 2011 so it was 11 11 11 if you want to put it that way and um that happened yeah that that you put that in there in your work that you're doing uh, finding these IEDs and these bombs and our main objective mine is trying to reach the village and every time we reach the village uh, we we're getting shot at and all this other stuff and our main objective was to cure this compound that was right there in between the new area the new base there was the village at the far end and then the this compound in the middle so we had an idea that that was where they were building they were making the IEDs they were making as soon as we got there clearly they they left what day is this? Uh, I would say this is like mid October. Okay. Like it was like late October, mid late October. We finally moved out there. Uh, yeah, because that was first. That was second platoon's first mission was on Veterans Day. So uh, first platoon, my platoon, we were the first ones out there as part of the troop, and then second platoon came, then third platoon came because they were out helping uh, special forces and stuff. And then uh, I had already gone out. We've already got in contact and stuff. And um, so that's when they're like, all right, let's, let's uh, clear this compound. And so we first got there, you know, my LT, my platoon uh, sergeant, were like, you know, why don't we just blow this place? It's, it already looks sketchy, you know, from afar. And then clearly we couldn't do that because why are we going to blow up a place that we don't know nothing else? So we're like, oh, let's go investigate. My old, our old command our old, um, would say, um, our commanders got switched also halfway in between the unit because this new commander needed his commander time. He was like, Mr. Ranger. He was like, no, we gotta, we gotta do this. We gotta do it this way. We gotta do it this way. And we're like, all right. So we would go, we went to the compound and that's where we started finding, you know, again, the same things, you know, bulletproof vests, uh, bullets, grenades, blasting caps, uh, stuff that was being used to make IEDs. So we just eventually called it, you know, the IED, I guess I, I call it now the IED warehouse in short. So that's literally where they were making it, making everything. I thought we would find burlap sacks of the crush boxes and what well, we cleared and then put sea wire and stuff. And 
you know, that way we try to do our best to keep people out of there. And we would be out for a month, go back to this base to refit, you know, uh, change our oil, get gas, get supplies. We'd be eating MREs, pooping in, in burn pits. <laughs> like they're literally, yeah, that, yeah like let's be, if we're being honest, like we'd, we'd poop in burn pits, burn it, you know, with the diesel. and A beautiful yeah, life yeah. of a soldier, right? Eating MREs. Oh man, believe me. Like I remember, yeah. Glamorous life. <laughs> yeah, like sleeping in our truck, living out of our truck, sleeping outside. You know, building. You know, we call it ranger graves. You know, the small, shallow grave. You know, just so you can sleep a little and bit. Do you and, actually sleep? Yeah. After a while, like yeah, you're so tired, you're so exhausted that you know you sleep, and then like your reflexes would wake you up. You know, like if something were to happen, like so yeah, you would sleep. Like you would take advantage of when you would sleep. We would go on missions and then come back just to keep pulling security from our trucks since we didn't have a base. Quick question I just thought of. Before this happened, your injuries, did you ever have a time where the hair was standing up on the back of your neck? Oh, every time. Um, when, I remember when I first found my first cachet, like it was desensitizing because you're, you're just right there around right, doing my job. You don't think about it until like you go back to base, you take off your uh, uniform, you take off your vest and everything, and then you're like, dang, I really did find cachet. I really did find an IED. I really did like, and then, you know, that's when you're like, no, 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 no. All right, shake it off. It was just, you know, writing an email. Like, all right, I got to find this. I got to find this. Yeah, like, whatever you say. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was really, it was your job, you know, so, or it was my job. So that's how I looked at it. I was like, all right, let's find this IED. And to me, it was a game at, at a point, like, all right, let's find it. Who's, let's see who's better, me or you. Like, are you better at hiding or am I better at finding? And that was when third platoon came after uh, we lost our guy. Um, and uh, they joined our platoons together because my other buddy, which I got blown up with, uh, Quentin Picon, was their uh, point man. So they put the two point mans together that were finding things. And, and they're like, all right, let's put both of you guys out there and, you know, let's clear this compound. And I remember... Uh, I think it was November 25th. Yeah, it was the day before my my or my 20th birthday. Excuse me. Over there in Afghanistan, we were gonna roll out the morning of my birthday, so I knew I wouldn't be able to call home. So I called home, you know, 25th. They're all telling me happy birthday, and so we go out the next morning, you know, refresh. You know, my my boys. I I, I love saying the story when we were refitting for those two days, and then we'd wake up. So they started jumping me. On the, the morning of my birthday, they started beating me up, you know, giving me what we call the blanket party, you know, just beating me up and over there, like fighting back. And I'm, they're like, oh, happy birthday, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm like, all right, dudes, like, all right, you know, and then fighting back like four or five dudes, <laughs> but telling me happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then, you know, we go out, you know, like we're refreshed. We go out, we, we still keep clearing that compound. November 30th, 2011 comes around four days this, later. This is the day, right? This is the day uh, my partner and I got blown up. We were cleaning the compound still. Nothing had changed. Finding things still. My LT had uh, called the mission off, was walking away. I, I was already done through my section, so it was my, my partner. And then his squad leader tells him, let's check the cell away real quick. You know, I bet there's something down there. So, you know, my partner being who he was, was like, all right, I ain't going to back down. So he goes and his squad leader sits here. He's getting ready and his squad leader sits down. So I'm sitting next to my team leader and uh, I'm like, why is he over there? 
getting his machine ready. We're already done. Again, all you have is time in Afghanistan. We're just going to come back tomorrow and keep clearing it. You know, we were already there for like five, six hours finding things, smoke, very tired, exhausted physically from pretty much digging into cement with the e-tool, trying to find arms and stuff like that. And so I go over there, I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? And he was like, nothing, just going to check this out real quick. And I'm like, why? We're just going to do it tomorrow. So now we'll just knock it out. So we don't got to do it tomorrow. So we go back and forth. I'm like, all right, I'm coming with you. He's like, no, you're not. And I'm like, all right, well, what happens to you happens to me. So here we go. Let's go. So they give me a boost. So the alleyway was very narrow. It was probably a good, like, four, maybe five feet wide. So they give me a boost on this, like, eight, nine-foot wall, mud, mud wall, you know. And sometimes it gets sloppy. You see, like, you know, hand tracks or whatever in the dirt or, like, a bomb sticking out of uh, the dirt or something. And so I visibly try to look. I'm like, okay, there's nothing there. I don't see anything there as far as I can see. And then, so it was so close. So I was able to jump on the other side. I'm like, okay, there's nothing there. So I jumped down. By then he was already halfway, And uh, I'm right behind him. I'm like, hey, I'm right behind you. And and uh, we get to the end of the alleyway and feel like an opening, like a backyard area. Uh, it was an opening and I'm like, we still gotta clear this tomorrow. You know, right there, over there on the corner, you see the noticeable jugs and gunpowder you see you see how they just you know up and left so you see it all right there man this is our tourist tomorrow blah blah so he gets a hit he's down about to set up to start probing i have my left arm on the wall my left foot forward he's in between my legs and boom that's really all i remember up until i remember like being so dazed so I'm telling you my story, and then I'll tell you the story that my buddies told me. Well, was this in the ground then? Did you step on it, or where where was the ice? We were probing, we were, so we were probing. So in order, we were picking the floor to find it. So that's what that's how we were finding that. We couldn't just like beep. Oh, there's something here, and then no, we had to uncover it physically oh. to identify it. And so they were using pretty advanced materials, and uh, yeah, so that's how we got blown up. So as you were and, digging uh, it up, is when it blew up. That's what, yeah, that's what okay. my, my partner, uh, Clint Picone, was uh, probing at it to, to identify it. It went off. Do you remember the, the second it went off? Do you remember that no. impact? You don't remember that? No. Okay. Uh, whatever hit my face pretty much put me out. I don't know what hit my face, but something hit my face and put me out. All I remember was feeling very groggy and then, like, my uh, somebody, like, putting something on my face, I ended up hearing that it was putting sunglasses on my face. Uh, and then just like, oh, Picone, where are you? Where are you? You know, he's like, I'm right here, man. I'm right here, man. Don't you die on me. Don't you die on me. And then, you know, I remember going to sleep, I guess. But that's all I, you know, it was like a vivid dream, you know, where you're like, oh, is it real? Is it not? So I'm like, all right. You know, I woke up technically in Bethesda, Maryland, that I remember. And it had already been like a week. And I'm like, what? And that's when the nurse walks in, you know, and that's when she was like, oh, you, oh you're awake. And that's when I realized all the damage that I took to my face and my mouth and my voice. And that's where she tells me, like, oh, you and Quinn Picone were injured in a dismounted IED incident. I'm like, what? Like me and him? No way. Like, no. April Fool's, you know, like, I was waiting for, you know, we had got blown up. And then she, told, she tells me my injuries. She's like, are you missing? At the time, it was... It was uh, just my toes of my foot. I had nerve damage on my foot, and uh, your knee, your left kneecap's broken. You have um, 
you're miss you're missing your left arm, shrapnel damage from your waist down, you have a collapsed lung, you had a blood transfusion, uh, 16 units pushed through you, half your face is broken, your jaw, your, you you don't have you don't have your forefront teeth, and uh, half your palate's gone, or most of your palate's gone, upper palate is gone, your nose is broken, you got damage to your eyes, your face, and I'm like, what? And it wasn't until she got to my face, and then that's where I like touched my face and felt like all the stitches and stuff. And I pulled one, and I'm like, okay, that this is real. Like this is true. This is this is yeah. I'm like, oh wow. When you woke up, you weren't in pain. Well, I was and I wasn't. I felt all the nerve damage on my arm and leg, on my arm and foot. Especially because it was like very wrapped, very casted. So I was just like, I still feel my arm and leg. Like they're still right there. I still feel, no, that's what's called nerve damage. That's what's called phantom pain. That's what's called. And I'm like, no, I still feel it. Yeah, no, like I was, no, dude, like you're missing your arm and your foot. Like, okay, your arm is gone. And just had they cut off your foot or your toes or what? At the time, it was only apparently my toes that had gotten the damage. So my quarter of my foot was pretty much done, and then the other one was pretty damaged. So they were like, hey, you're either getting a surgery on your ankle or you're going to be a below knee amputee. And I'm, at the time, I thought, you know, keeping more was better. So I'm like, all right, they just cut me at my ankle. And that's how they did it, you know, until so they, they cut it to my ankle, and I was a signs amputee for a little while. Have you seen pictures of yourself at that time? And if so, what do you think of, or when was the first time you saw yourself? So I kept insisting on asking for a mirror. In ICU, I wanted to see myself. Like, all right, like I want to see my face. Then they're like, oh no, we'll leave it to your doctors. Leave it. I'm like, no, I'm like, I just want to see my face. I'm like, what's so hard about you know giving me that table that's literally right next to me to let me see my face? And then eventually the nurses were like, all right. So I saw my face and I'm just like, geez. I'm like, oh wow. like all right, well, this is who I am, you know, like, this is how I'm going to be, you know, a bunch of dried up blood in my face and a bunch of stitches. Like it, and Did you recognize yourself or were you pretty messed up? I honestly didn't recognize myself. And even my buddies, when they pulled me out of the alleyway, they didn't know who I was because of all the trauma that I had to my face. I, you, I remember all the blood and all the stuff coming out of my mouth. And, you know, we were like, oh, like, you know, here are your dog tags and here's your ID. All right, yeah, this is Cavetto. Like, my buddy, my partner was conscious throughout the whole time. I wasn't. What were the extent of the injuries for your friend? He lost both his legs above and below the knee, and he's, the hand that he was probing with split his right hand in half. Um, but they were able to save it. Um, I remember, or I don't remember, but what everybody would tell me, and he told me, he was like, dude, I just remember being a man, being a dude, like, you want to make sure your parts are still there. So he was <laughs> just like, they told him you're missing your legs, and he's like, oh, dude, he tells his medic and, and my medic, like, hey, man, make sure it's there, man, make sure everything's good, and they're like, no, you're good. <laughs> Even in our worst moment, like, it was still the cracking joke, like, it was still good, you're good, like, the stuff you worry about just got blown up, like. What was the final outcome for your leg then? Now I'm a below knee amputee. I got I had surgery about five years ago to to cut it back to a regular BK size because believe me, I tried it as much as I could being a science amputee, but eventually so they used my heel as cushion for the bottom 
oh, of my leg. I thought eventually it started shifting forward and I was just stepping on nothing but bone at the bottom. Oh. I was very limited on prosthetic work since I didn't have room to work with. That sounds uh, incredibly my... painful. Uh, yeah, it was at the end. And it was actually kind of funny because that's when I ran my first half marathon. So my oh, doctor was like, Jeffrey, he was like, you're running your first half marathon, like since you've been an amputee. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, you're, you're scheduled for surgery a month later from your half marathon. And I'm like, yeah, isn't it painful? I'm like, yeah, but I'm still going to run, dude. And he's like, you know, it's 13 miles, right? Uh, or he's like, did you train? I'm like, no, absolutely not. But am I going to quit? No. <laughs> so that's literally what I was relying on. And sure enough, everybody was like, dude, you know, it's 13 miles. You know, it's 13 miles. I'm like, yeah. I, everybody keeps reminding me. And sure enough, I finished my first half marathon in two hours and 42 minutes without training, without anything. A month before, they're about to revise my leg. You said that uh, you wanted to tell me about what they have told you. Did you already do that? What you don't remember? No. Okay. So when I got blown up, I, my LT was saying, I remember coming back and like, what's taking forever? Why aren't we loading up? By then he realizes we're down the alleyway. He's like, dude, all right. Like after that, we're done. We're done, done. So he walks away. We get blown up. He said, like, something hit him hit him on his head. And he was like, oh, my God, like, it's something, you know, a body part or something. And it was a piece of the machine that we were using. And, and, you know, everybody goes into their instant, like, all right, somebody got blown up. And within seconds, minutes, whatever that everybody was saying, like, they just reacted, you know. They let it un unfold. And my partner told me that even after he, him getting blown up, he still turned around and shook my boot to see because I wasn't moving. And so they had to pull me out of the alleyway first to pull him because of how narrow it was. So they pulled him out and they, or they pulled me out and they pulled him out. That's when they started working on us and rendering aid, calling up nine line, uh, rendering tourniquets and what have you. And here comes my medic rendering aid to both of us until his medic was able to show up. By then, my other buddy was already clearing the landing zone for the Blackhawks and the line line. Like, everybody else was pulling security, making sure something else is going to pop up. They'll be ready for it. And that's really all the stories that everybody had told me. Everybody told me they're – I was close to all my boys and all my buddies, so they all told me their position on where they were and what they did at the time. And were both of his legs gone immediately? Immediately. I cannot even believe, because I hear this, too over and over again about guys that are still talking and <laughs> oh yeah like oh yeah believe me so my buddies I, I don't remember this but they're like my old my one of my old uh team leaders was like dude you didn't want to stay down you didn't want to stay down like i remember when you finally like you were trying to get up you kept trying to get up like oh what happened what happened what happened you're like dude stay down dude stay down they're like dude you didn't want to stay down so we just told you, like, you hit your head really hard, and then that was it. He's like, that's all we could tell you. And just for you to stay down, like, oh, okay, like, no. And then, like, I, I guess I kept trying to get up. And that's what they told me. I don't remember that, but that's what they told me. When you woke up at Walter Reed, was your mom there? From what I remember, I was just like, what's going on? Where's my family then? You know, and... From what I remember, I remember my sister first, and then uh, my parents, and then my brother. At the time, my sister was an EMT, and the Army at the time was only able to fly out two parents and a sibling. 
So my sister looking for flights for her to come, and luckily her company at the time was like the next flight, and we'll pay for it. So that way my the ticket can go to my brother. So my sister was there first. You know, my parents and my brother were waiting for army. You know, I just remember talking to my siblings, and it hurt me. It hurt me the most. You know, talking to my brother because he he always being the older brother would always you know protect me as much as he could and tell me like Gio, I thought you had it. Like you said, you were good. Thought I was too. You know and yeah, I I was just like, dang, like, I let my family, you know, I, at the time I was like, damn, like, I, I felt like, man, I, I'm sorry for doing this to you guys. Like, no, like, we were good, though. Like, me and Picone were good. We were solid. Like, no, like, and, and I'm like, how is he doing? How is he doing? You know, and like, his family would come see me. My family would go see him. Thought it was one of those moments, let's just not tell them. Because I'm like, is he alive? Is he really alive? Is he really alive? You know, and they're like, yeah, 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 he's fine, he's fine. And so I told them, me and him had this thing, that old uh, commander, he was a ranger. So Mr. Ranger would always like make it known that he was a ranger. So ranger's motto is, rangers lead the way, all the way, two people say it. So my, mine and his thing were, were like, hey man, do you see rangers in front of you? He's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, do you, see, do you see rangers in front of you? He, no. And he's like, man, mine hounds lead the way, all the way, and salute. <laughs> we would say that to each other when we're about to push off. Mine hounds lead the way, all the way. Because that was the machine we were using was called the Minehound. And just being sarcastic dudes that we were. And so I told his sisters and his family, I'm like, all right, tell him Minehounds lead the way. Uh, tell me what he tells you. They go and they come back. They're like, he said to tell you all the way. And I'm like, okay. Because nobody else knew that besides me and him. When you're in the hospital, do you go through a time of anger, depression? Like wondering why was, you're still here? What's the purpose? It was definitely a self-identifying factor. I was more pissed. The fact that I got taken out of a game, scoring all the points and being good at it. And then like, you know, you get taken out. I'm like, no, dude, patch me up and put me back in. I need to be back there. The nurses were telling me like, no, they're fine. Your buddies are fine. Both the mind detectors are in your ICU. What do you think going to happen to them? So we, like, I, I guess I held it personally, like, no, like, I need to be back over there. I was angry at the fact that I wasn't there. You still wanted to go back? Yeah, absolutely. No, no. And then they're like, all right, well, you're missing your army leg. So I'm like, okay, so where's my partner? I want to go see him. Why can't I go see him? Well, until you get up to your room out of ICU, you can go see him. I'm like, all right, cool. So I get up to my room. First thing I ask, I'm like, all right, I'm in my room. Where can I go see him? I'm like, well, until you're physically able to transition to your wheelchair and, you know, disconnect it from your feeding tube, your chest tube, Ugh. everything. Uh, then you can go see them. I'm like, oh, you guys are liars. <laughs> you know, I was, <laughs> like, I just want to see them. Until you know, and tell and tell, right? Yeah. And I will say, one, he was holding my hand on the bird, keeping me alive. Two, he was the motivation to get me out of bed because that was the condition. It's like, you gotta get up and go see them. Like, all right, disconnect these things off me right now. They slowly did. I'm like, what do I have to do? They're like, well, you gotta eat certain calories a day so you can take out your feeding tube. All right, I would stuff myself, fall asleep, still stuff myself, fall asleep, but I still wanted to, to get there. I still had damage to my mouth. So at the time, yeah, I had to take my feeding tube out. And then, you know, they put the commode next to you. Like, all right, you gotta transfer. You gotta use the restroom, you know, to see. And I'm like, all right, like, whatever. So the morning came and I'm like, ready, I'm already doing all these things. Why, why can't I go see them? And I'm, 
I don't know who you need to get or what you need to do. I'm like, but I'm sitting up, up, up this bed, regardless if you guys are here or not. And my sister was like, oh, dang, like, let me go. Like, <laughs> He's serious. Again, my sister was an EMT at the time. So she was like, all right, like, let's do it. Like, I'm, I'm with you. Like, and then that's when nurses came and everybody came. They're like, all right. Like, so I'm like, damn, was it that hard? Like, I just want to sit up in bed. So I sat up in bed for the first time, almost 40 minutes. And, you know, I laid down. I was clearly out of it. You know, I passed out of sleep, you know, from being tired from just sitting up in bed. And, and then from there, I woke up. I'm like, all right, like, when, where's my wheelchair? When can I go see him? So I remember I finally had the enough strength, my wheelchair and everything to go see him. I was very exhausted even transferring the wheelchair. And so my mom, like, where is he? Where is he? And I remember going to go see him and he was eating. He was eating something. And at the time, I still couldn't, like, really chew food or, like, I remember walking up to him and he just puts his, his sandwich down and he's like, oh, man, what's up? You know, He's like, you're a stronger man than me, man. You're already up and moving. And I'm like, dude, I just came to see you, man. He's like, I want to make sure you were good. And, you know, just talking to him and, you know, his dad over there. And I was just like, I know our families are seeing each other, but I wanted to see you. That was the moment. Is there a brotherhood that exists between comrades in arms, I guess you would say, that a lot of people don't comprehend? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, even the wounded guys that we meet each other and stuff, and instantly it's an automatic camaraderie, doing combat stuff, being blown up, having surgeries, you know, the, all the medications. Instantly it's like, we get it. We don't got to talk about it. We, we can if we want to, but right away it's like, no, I got you. You got me. Cool. All right. Because that small group, you understand what the other one has been through, where the rest yep. of us have no idea what you've been through. Absolutely. With all of your injuries, what caused you the most pain? Uh, that's a good question. Because at the time, since I had pain everywhere, you know, my face, my arm, my leg. It probably just radiated everywhere, didn't it? I really wasn't focused on pain. I actually refused, like, pain medication because I knew it was slowing me down and making me feel heavier and heavier. I'm like, all right, dude, I just want to start walking and be better. That's, yeah, that was. How many surgeries did it take on your mouth? And the mouth is a painful area too. Oh yeah, yeah. Believe me, that I couldn't even. I would say like a good 10, 15 surgeries. Because so when I first got blown out, they had to stitch my lip to my roof of my mouth to stop the bleeding. Because clearly nothing was stopping the bleeding. So I had to have multiple vestibular releases. I had to have a donor bone put in my mouth. My jaw was broken, so they had to fix that. My lip was barely hanging on by a thread. So they had to stitch it up and roll it out to give me a lip. You uh, had to have a new lip made? Pretty much from what they told me. It yeah, looks, it I, looks I, really good. You can't tell. I could tell in old pictures because I, I didn't have no lips, you know. Um, <laughs> I got, and I got a, a big bump lip on the bottom and, and you know, scars on yeah. my face. Wow. And are you left or right-handed? Or were you? Well, I, no, believe me, I was never, I was never left-handed. Okay. By, by any, so luckily that saved me a couple of months of uh, therapy because I know a lot of guys that were right-hand dominant and had to learn how to rewrite and stuff like that again. And does it throw, since you're missing your arm and your leg, does that, I don't know, this might be a stupid question. Does it throw your, do you have to learn how to rebalance? Oh, absolutely. There's something that's called gait form and in prosthetics. Believe me, it was first time encounter too, experiencing anything like this. So 
you know, they got to, like, see how you stand, how you walk. You know, that's how you see guys limping, not limping, because that's what they were focused on. And gait was very important for your prosthetics work and how your anatomy is being an amputee now. And so I remember walking and running, especially running for the first time, it was very weird because, you know, you're used to swinging your both hands, yeah. both legs, striding. And so all that was different. And I remember eating it the first time uh, running because I just, you know, there's one thing that you do in the hospital or in physical therapy and stuff. There's one thing that, nah, I, I could do this. And then you go over there, try to run in an open field, like how you used to. And there you go, like running and striding and then boom, like you, uh, you're over there trying to control a foreign object that's not attached to your body. And you, you learn really fast how, how close the floor is. How hard is it to learn to use that prosthetic? Which I had no clue how expensive they are. Oh my goodness. That's an arm and a leg. It's like a, that's <laughs> true. And you're like a, the bionic man once you get one of those. Holy cow. You know, everybody loves to say, too, you know, the whole, like, oh, you have a hook, a spring, you know, so you run faster. I'm like, no, dude, I was a lot faster with all my limbs. I, I ran a 504 mile. Right now, my fastest mile at double IPT, I'm a 708. Do you run every day? No, not, not right now. Okay. I haven't ran in a while. But when I would sign up for races and stuff, that's what would get me out, like, running a little bit more. Like, But I wouldn't run more than two miles. I'd I'd be over there running half marathons and I'm like, Oh yeah, the most I ran was like a mile and a half. And do you still experience phantom pain? Either daily or every other day. It's weird. It's the same thing with the V when you go to the VA, I hate with the whole like, Oh, what's your pain at zero to 10? Well, clearly I've been at a 10. Clearly a lot of us have been at a 10. You know, this is where perception definitely takes a, a toll. We've been at a 10 lady, dude, or whatever doctor. We've been at a 10. So like when I say a three or four or a two, like, oh, so you're not that bad. You're not that bad in pain. What? Anyways. That whole phantom pain is mind-boggling. It must be impossible to even describe. It is. And there's times where even, like, I tell my wife or my sister, you know, that's fascinated with medical, my wife, man, I feel like my ankle's broken and I'm walking on a broken ankle or, like, oh, it feels like I'm stepping on a hot stove or, like, yeah, and like my toes are bending backwards. Like it's even my, my fingers, like it feels like my hands bending the opposite way. That is nuts, yeah. isn't it? In fact, I have, I can't remember who it was that I was speaking to, but he was telling me that he still will actually go down to like scratch his leg. Yep. Yeah. And then crazy. If, you're, if, if you're lucky enough to have your other, like me, I'm missing my left side. So. What they tell you in therapy is, oh, okay, well, since you still have your right foot, try scratching your right foot to see if it alleviates the sensation. Really? And I'm like, I'm like, what? And then, yeah, it, believe me, therapy was the craziest thing. And but, does that work then? If you've scratched the right side, does it help with the left? Not, no, not so much. No, in my <laughs> okay. opinion, no. They tell you, like, close your eyes. Like, I'm like, dude, I'm still touching my right foot. No. And they're like, well, you're trying to trick your mind. I'm like, well, no, my mind knows I'm blown up. So my nose is missing this. <laughs> like, that, is, that whole thing is just crazy to me that you experience yeah. something that's it's not there. And do you experience it every day? Uh, every day about there. Um, Especially when we talk about it and bring more attention to it. <laughs> like right now. 
that's our best uh, medicine right there. You know, like, like we run on check engine light all day, you know, all day, every day. When the VA or somebody like, oh, I see you up and moving and doing this, like, oh, you must not be in pain. I'm like, you just get used to the pain. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Like you're in pain every day to be like, oh man, yeah, I'm in pain. This. Um, you just like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm in pain. Yeah. Where did you meet your wife? I met my wife uh, freshman year in high school. Um, her older brother and my cousins uh, hung out, uh, had older cousins in the high school that we moved out of Cutler into Reedley. And uh, yeah, that's really where we met. And, Were you uh, dating before you left then? Oh, no, absolutely okay. not. Okay. I, like we drove each other nuts in high school, you know, like okay. we're always giving each other stuff. And like, if you would have told us we'd be married with three kids, you know, later it would be like, nah, ew. Like, ew? I won't oh, tell yeah. your wife that you said ew. No, she'll say the same thing. She'll be like, oh, yeah, we never thought we'd be married and together and stuff. And your kids, when did they first realize that there was something a little different about dad? Or do you remember the first time maybe one of them asked, well, where's your arm? Where's your leg? Or why are you different? So it's pretty funny how, like, my boys, they're little smart asses, too. So it's pretty funny. When they were kids, they would touch my arm and my, my missing leg and like nothing would come of it. But you know, here comes Halloween and I remember my, they were both messing with bloody fake leg. Daddy, here's your leg, dad. And you know, they were trying to actually have a video of them trying to put the leg on me. Here, dad, here's your leg. We didn't really make it, we, still to this day, like we don't make it a big thing. It's normal for them to see that. You know, it wasn't only until uh, our oldest son, Giovanni, started uh, going to school so he started noticing, like, oh, dang, my dad is missing an arm. Because his friends were asking, or, like, he would see other dads or other parents, and I would tell the kids, like, oh, wash your hands. Especially now with COVID, it's pretty hilarious, because when I see them, you know, everybody's like, oh, wash your hands, wash your hands, this. And I'm like, it's because I didn't wash my hands good enough, you know? Like, <laughs> before it was like, oh, I didn't eat my vegetables, I didn't eat my beans. Being Mexican, of course, you got to eat your beans. But I was like, oh, I don't eat my vegetables. My mom's a robot. You know, everything that all the people say to the little kids. Told them, like, oh, yeah, I just didn't wash my hands good enough. They never noticed the leg because I'm always walking. And then when they do notice the leg, I'm like, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a robot. You know, we don't get into blood and guts and all this with little kids. Right. Um, or, like, if they really want to know, their parents really want to know or ask. Like, well, you know, I was like, oh, I was a soldier, you know, far, far away. Got injured. And that's it. Like, that's literally all I say, really. What are you doing now? I see that you received your bachelor's degree in psychology. Yeah, I was actually surprised at that, too. <laughs> the ones that are mo most messed up are the ones that get into that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Believe me, that's it's what I say. I'm like, all right, what am I good at besides, you know, being a soldier, besides being a restaurant worker, besides being a packing house worker? I'm like, all right, I'm good at talking, clearly. So I'm like, I want, whenever I do end up getting a job or something, eventually I want to have, like, nah, you don't have your degree or you don't have this, being cut short. So I'm like, you know what? You know, when I do try to do something in psychology, I want to uh, actually help, like, troubled youth or do something in psychology. I want them to be like, all right, well, at least he's got his bachelor's in psychology. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I never saw myself going back to school because clearly I barely made 2.0 to, to play soccer in high school. <laughs> I used to cheat off the smart kids in, in high school and, you know, I would negotiate, you know, the restaurant being a, a block or two away. I'd be like, hey, man, you know, show up after school. I'll give you a burrito and a soda. Like, 
<laughs> oh, that is funny. All right. Serious here. Was your sacrifice worth it? Absolutely. It's what I tell people too. It's the choices we make as people too. Like looking back at that mission, clearly you play the what ifs over and over again. What if, what if, what if, you know, and then eventually you just be like, well, it didn't happen. So if I would have just stayed there and like, all right, he's going to go check it. Or like, oh, it's not my job. You know, like literally everybody's got that coworker that I'm like, oh, just, no, I just came here to punch in and punch out. You know, I would still be probably not blown up, not an amputee, not this. Like, I, I didn't have to go down an alleyway with them. I just didn't feel it right for him to go by himself. Would be the better way if him and I both checked out this alleyway. I don't regret walking down an alleyway. I don't regret being blown up. And was it worth it? Absolutely. And I see here that you support veteran nonprofits. What do you support? So Homes for Our Troops donated in my house, uh, handicap accessible home, wheelchair accessibles. My wife, my sister, my brother-in-law, my brother, my nephew, like all of us have ran half marathons, 10 kids, five Ks, the medals and stuff at Disney at other races and stuff so we can uh, bring more awareness to uh, Homes for Our Troops for donating to catastrophically wounded veteran amputees. So that's where I got involved with, that's when I really started running again was because of them. And they're like, oh, we're starting up a running team. Are you interested? I'm like, hell yeah. Like, like I never trained, but <laughs> I guess we'll find out. I'm like, I know I won't quit. Yeah, my family was all for it. And I run as a part of them back when the runs were going on. And uh, this gold star dad that I became friends with lost his son back in 2012. So I would always participate in, his son's golf tournament, his memory, or the memory of his son in uh, golf tournaments. He's a great person and, you know, somebody I really had, uh, still look up to on how he carries himself. I'm part of that. And um, he actually took my brother and I to our first uh, Oakland Raider game. We're Raider fans, so we took us to our first Oakland Raider game and being a Chargers fan. So it was like a great time. Became a motivational speaker. Just from talking like this, like they're like, oh, dude, you'd be a great motivational speaker. I'm like, well, what, if you want to put a label to it. You're definitely entertaining. Like I've told you before, like a lot of us have experienced plenty of seriousness in our lives to be so serious and to be so, we just want to live. And the people that judge us for like, oh man, this guy says some jokes or like he's sarcastic or he's this. I uh, had Travis Vendella as a guest and he is a double amputee. Both legs were amputated from an IED. And he said this, when you're mentioning this about people saying, well, why are you being so silly or whatever? He said that when he would go into restaurants, he would always say to people, you know, with his wife, well, how many people are there for dinner tonight? And he'd say one and a half. Yeah. I guess it was a restaurant that he would frequent. And the manager said, will you please not say that anymore? It's really making our waitresses uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. It's making you uncomfortable. My favorite is uh, clearly missing an arm and a leg. You ever use, like, oh, what, what's that furniture cost? Oh, an arm and a leg, an arm and a leg. I love saying that one. Like, oh, it's just like an arm and a leg. Like, oh, your house was free? I'm like, yeah, it just cost an arm and a leg. <laughs> I'm like, dude, come on. Like, why would you say that? Or like, oh, you get this for free? I'm like, yeah, well, it costs an arm and a leg. You but, have to, though, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what gets us going through all this. They see me struggling with something. They're like, oh, do you need a hand? I'm like, why? Do you have an extra one? Like. <laughs> You know, and they're like, oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. I'm like, no, man, like, no, come down, calm down. Like, you're not that serious. Like, let's, 
Is there anything that you want the American people to know about the sacrifice of the military? So it's definitely a, a subject that we, we all need to come together for, you know, regardless of what you believe, because there's still out there, there are still Americans out there of every race, nationality, their political beliefs to being out there and fighting for freedom and fighting for our country, fighting for what we believe in as Americans. And Jeffrey, what does America mean to you? To me, like a lot, it's funny because everybody's like, dude, you're, you're the most like redneck Mexican I've ever met. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, no, America means to me freedom. This is- You can't this be is a redneck freedom. Mexican, right? Oh, absolutely. My partner was the half white, half Indian. He was the most redneck Indian I've ever met. So America means to me, it's freedom. It's the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is the greatest country ever. It's the reason why people immigrate from wherever they're coming from for the land of opportunity. You can choose to be wherever you want to be here. If you want to be a cook, be a cook. Like if you want to be a law enforcement officer, serve the military, be a social worker, you have that opportunity to do that here. And where in other countries, a lot of people that like to, that like to chime in on like, well, America's this, America's that. Like go to other countries, dude, see how other countries actually run their stuff. Yeah, there may, there may be other decent countries, but clearly we're all here for the same principle on this being the land of opportunity. Like my, my family started picking fruit. I've, I've worked in the packing houses and being a restaurant worker and now became a soldier. You know, now I have my degree, you know, and everybody has their accomplishments that, that they've been going through. You know, it's given my family the opportunity to become, you know, law enforcement officers, entrepreneurs, owner of restaurants, social workers, stuff that they wouldn't have had in, in Mexico or we wouldn't have had in Mexico. Is America a bad place? Like what makes America a bad place to the people that really want to say that? Is it America or is it the people? We, the people, have to treat each other better. Regardless of race, regardless of political beliefs, like everybody just wants to argue now. I'm like, dude, I'm like, dude why, why are we, I'm like, really? Why are we arguing? No, we need to talk, relax, settle it down a bit and stop making everything so political. Get to know each other, really talk to each other, minus right away now it's, uh, what side of politics do you fall under? I'm like, man, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I want to talk about like Gatorade. Talk about who we are as people. Like, I want to talk about who you are, man. I don't want to talk about stuff that I have no control of. We need to treat each other better as people. I've been stereotyped too, being Mexican. Like, my family has been stereotyped being Mexican. It's really not about race. People are like, oh, you don't see race. You absolutely do see race. It'd be hypocritical for us to say that we don't see race. Like we, we see white, we see brown, we see black, we see Asian, we see whatever. It's how you treat those people, man. Like to me, I, like, I'm like, hey, what's up, man? Like, hey, hey, what's up? Like, hey, hey, good morning, hey, wherever you are. Like really, I don't care if you're the janitor, I don't care if you're the CEO. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your horoscope is or if you believe in essential oils. I, 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 <laughs> I like love that. I like treating people for who they are and what they show you and who they are as a person. If they want to be standoffish and not talk to you, cool. I'm like, all right, like, at least I tried and that's it. I think we need to remember that back. We need to go back to that, you know, getting to know people for who they are because a lot of it's a bunch of misunderstanding too on people's cultural norms, environmental norms and how they grew up and raised and they see us be, you know, being blown up and like, oh yeah, you guys live this nice lifestyle. Like, no, we don't. We really need to get to know each other, who we are as, as people, as we the people. Jeffrey, it has been a treat speaking with you. Thank you for your sacrifice and thank you for your service and thank you for being a guest today. Thank you, Tina, for uh, 
for having me. I had such a blast spending the time with Jeffrey. He is one of the most down-to-earth, humorous people that I have had the pleasure of meeting over the course of this podcast. If you want to follow Jeffrey on Facebook, I will have his link in the show notes. The support of this podcast is very appreciative. If you can take a moment and leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, share with friends and family. Let's work together on getting these important stories out to as many people as possible. Next week, my guest is Travis Mills. He is one of only five quadruple amputees from the War on Terror. He is charismatic, funny, and hugely inspiring. Until next Friday, see you then.